Hello and welcome to the Coaching Podcast, coaching for success in sport and business. Your host is Emma Doyle, the energy and high performance under pressure coach who is a world leader in unleashing human potential. Buckle up for this high octane session. Let them have it, coach. G'day, everybody. My name is Emma Doyle, and I have the pleasure of interviewing today Chuck Garcia. Now, I first met Chuck through our mutual friend and wonderful coach, Bob Litwin. So big shout out to Bob. Uh, We're a huge fan of your work. And if you haven't heard of Bob, please check out his work, Live the Best Story of Your Life. But back to Chuck. He is the founder of Climb Leadership International and coaches executive worldwide on public speaking, emotional intelligence, and executive presence. He's written a book and he's got another one on the way. He's a mountaineer. He has got so many years and years of experience in leadership positions at some of the world's best and biggest companies and so much more. I just can't wait to chat to you. So, Chuck, welcome to the show. How are you, mate? I am very well, Emma. Thank you for coming on. It's always a pleasure to collaborate with you. All right. So, listen, we'll get straight into it. We are going to talk about Vegemite, the Australian spread. You either love it or you strongly dislike it. Have you tried it? I have. I spent time in Sydney and Melbourne. And when I got to Sydney, the first thing that somebody did was hit me. I got, was at the Bloomberg office and he opened up this, this jar and he said, all right, Chuck, this is your Australian moment. I was expecting to eat kangaroo and drink a Foster's beer, but he said, oh no, we got a better moment. So indeed he did. I have to say, I'm not a fan of food in a jar or a bottle. I'm a paleo guy, but I do appreciate and, and and men at work, when they sang that song that became famous, the Americans didn't know what Vegemite was. I didn't know it at the time, but I am glad I did try it. Not my cup of tea, but I get it. <laughs> yes, we did. Uh, it was put on our dummies when we were younger, so we have no choice but to love it. But uh, because you answered that way, could you first share with us a coaching moment that didn't go well and what might be a lesson? Yeah, Early on in my coaching career, I was asked to train a CFO on a couple different matters. Now, my domain, Emma, and thank you, I appreciate the bio. My domain is two things in the coaching world. One is public speaking. That's the external, helping somebody to do what I did for many years, step on a stage like what you did for the TED Talk. The second part of that, though, which is the internal portion, is emotional intelligence. Now, these are things that I I teach at Columbia. I practiced for so many years, and I coach many to do one or the other. I was asked to do both. And it was an interesting opportunity because I didn't quite realize I was doing that. And what it led to, the reason I say that I was asked to train a CFO, who's an accountant by trade, to step on stage in front of a bunch of shareholders. It was something he was very uncomfortable with doing. It's not something he was prepared for. He was ill-equipped. And when I started to train him, I was very much focused on what was the external layer of what happens when he steps on that stage. And my book, A Climb to the Top, uses a framework called the Ten Commandments of Great Communicators, which is a toolkit to help people recognize at any point during the arc of your talk, there's going to be different tools, whether you're emotional in storytelling, whether you are pausing for dramatic effect, different techniques, which you do exceedingly well. 
As I was coaching him, I completely negated, and let me let me preface this by saying it wasn't going well. He wasn't responding to the coaching well. And, and at first, I was getting very flustered, saying this is a very closed mind. He didn't want to be coached. As far as he was concerned, I was just an idiot, and there was a stigma around coaching. And hey, I'm the smartest guy in the room. I'll get on that stage, and I'll wing it. So the first lesson that I had to come to, that I had to conclude in my own mind, that's not his failing, it's mine. I didn't really empathize. I didn't, I, I tried to work on the external layer without understanding how do I get inside this individual to provide the evidence, the relevance, and the consequence of inaction. What would happen if he didn't take the coaching? What I was certain of is he didn't. He was going to stand on that stage in front of shareholders and bungle his delivery. But as far as he was concerned, this master of the universe didn't need to learn anything from anybody, including me. So really the moment was, and it made me become a better teacher. I had to step back and reflect. I have to get inside him. I have to bring the emotional intelligent techniques, but here's the lesson. I was dealing with someone who's rooted in a career on numbers very empirically oriented. Everything that's going to be managed has to be measured, including him. And early on in my coaching career, I wanted to take the empirical out of the world. I'm coaching a human being. What I failed to do was connect to the fact that I needed to show him the evidence in an empirical way. I eventually figured it out. I gave him an emotional intelligence assessment. It has four domains. Each domain has a score. The reason I'm saying that, Emma, until I showed him or demonstrated the evidence of his low empathy, him lacking in certain self-awareness, it was only in looking at the scores, recognizing the light bulb finally came on, oh, maybe Chuck's onto something. And I realized then, and you talked about it in your TED Talk, it's how you find a way to get into that individual. I wasn't finding a way until I had to, out of sheer survival techniques, how do I find a way into him? And it unleashed in me, all of a sudden, I, I began to see how other methods by which I get to like-minded individuals like him. And now I, I, I'm in a completely different starting point when I sense I have someone of this personality type. And it eventually went very well, but that became the platform of our success. Evidence, relevance, consequence. Evidence, relevance, consequence. I love it already, Chuck. So good. Uh, and thank you for sharing that because we've all had those moments where we've just skipped the empathy or we've gone through it too quickly and there's so many things, so many rabbit holes you can go down as a coach. And, you know, again, great point about self-awareness. We have to bring everything up to our own self-awareness as coaches as well. So what about on the flip side? Can you think of a story where something's gone really well and what was the lesson? What's gone really well, even though I've coached hundreds of people, was this one. And I think I point to this one because it was both my worst moment and my best moment. It became my best teacher. Because what did I learn out of this? I'm heightening the contrast between I felt I was at rock bottom. I went home feeling defeated. I'm not getting through. And I'm blaming him. I was like, oh, my God, I'm blaming. The There's no blame. I'm not holding myself accountable for failing to realize how to help him. But the best moment that came out because it really unleashed and empowered me for the words that you use in coaching, it was my own mindset. 
I needed to empower him in a way that he related to the way that the women in prison in your TED talk talked about where you gave them the freedom of self-expression. I wasn't doing that. I went in there instead of listening to him, I went in there telling him, oh, this is what you're going to do. This is what good coaches do. Oh my God, did I have it backwards? And then when I realized and I listened and I understood and I began to empathize, there's he, he needs another way. And it's not my way, although it could be if I if I plant my mind to the fact that I can own this moment. And it became my best moment because what ultimately happened, I don't want to, I'm not sure this is the right word. No, let me back up. He bought in because originally he didn't. So there was a very big barrier between us. And when I got to the evidence, relevance, and consequence, what I was getting was incremental buy-in until we got to the point where, which was, aha, oh my God. Because once I put him on, on video, well before he, he he stood up to to the event, we first did a series of proof of concept. How are you doing here? How are you doing? Let's put it on video. We had a cameraman, all that. It was all good. Now, Emma, he is beginning to see the evidence, relevance, and consequence. It's not about me talking about it. I needed him to see it, but more important, I needed him to feel it. So the best moment, Emma, came out of actually a video recording in practice. It was when we sat down in a moment that I felt, I think we've got a breakthrough here. We sat together as good partners do. I didn't say very much. I clicked the button as he watched the video and I watched him. Now, when I first started watching him, what I saw early on before this moment, what I saw was self-defeat. He was beating himself up, but he wasn't, he wasn't, he didn't want me to know that. I'm just reading the nonverbal cues of how he's feeling in the moment of watching himself. At this moment, though, the, his body spoke before his mouth opened. I saw a completely different set of body language cues on display where he was smiling. He was now leaning in. He was now... His shoulders were coming up, his hands, I was teaching him to go into the steeple position to engage the hands as part of your talk. And all of a sudden, what was wonderful, Emma, he began to mirror as he was sitting there what he was watching himself on the video. He said, oh my God, this is pretty good. And he started doing the very thing that he was watching. I said, oh, whoa, I think I got this because he is his own evidence. Duh! I, 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 I didn't quite see it that way because as the coach, you know, you come in. Whoa, wonderful learning moment. And I told him, I shared it with him. It's like, your, your, our worst moment was my best teacher. Mm. And, and, and then he, he rose to new heights and he did great, but I'm glad that happened. It was a struggle. And I, I was beating myself up a bit for not understanding how to react to it. But I got to say, as coaches, we spend so much time coaching other people. Sometimes either we need to coach ourselves or our coaches become our best teachers. And I wouldn't have it any other way. And the other point that came to mind as you were sharing that story is even the importance of videotaping ourselves coaching. Right. I think... The more yeah. we can, again, you know, self-reflect on that, how do we use our hands to, yeah. to share a point? Uh, the little nonverbal things that you can't see when you're just coaching, uh, I think is so important as well because we it casts such a, a shadow, doesn't it, on onto others. Uh, so, yeah. And, and there's one other point here. I think 
we as coaches have a responsibility to lead by example. And we are often are in moments, we do a fine equilibrium between humble and being very bombastic. It's this very strange thing. And as a coach, you understand that. If you look at the continuum between humility and conviction, we need them both. And we need to understand when it's time to be humble and when it's really time to be tough. But I say that because when we watch ourselves coach, we spend a great deal of time observing others. But what they're really doing is observing us. And I know people that watch me on video, they've watched my YouTube, they've seen, uh, millions of people have seen me on stage. And I'm very conscious of the fact that what I teach everyone I coach, the body speaks before the mouth opens. And when you step onto that stage or you step onto a meeting room, in 250 milliseconds, an impression is being formed. And 55% of that impression is formed by what they see. It's a visual cue. You haven't even spoken. And the mind over thousands of years of evolution is already beginning to process, what do I have here? And then you begin to speak. And it's not the sound of your voice necessarily that they're picking up on. It's the tonality. Are you energetic? Are you loud? slow, listless, whatever that is, we pick up on tone. We feel tone. We don't hear tone. We don't have to. We hear the sounds, but we feel the tone. And that's 38%. And yet only 7% of what people see they remember in the words because we can't paraphrase it. It's too many words. I say that because many of the people that I coach, when they're ready particularly to give a speech, or whatever that may be, they're locked in on getting all the words right. And they start writing them down and they want to get all the perfectionist tendencies come out and they want to write every word with the commas and the periods. And I take the pen out of their hands. It's like, tell you what, we're not going to do that. You know why? Because I'm not, not going to remember a goddamn word you said, but here's what I will remember. I'm going to remember how you made me feel. I'm going to remember how you started the primacy effect. You opened up in a way that engaged me and you got 250 milliseconds to do it. And helping them to understand the cost of disengagement. If you open up in a boring, bland, hi, I'm Chuck, here's my presentation. You know, I mean, and you start with the filler words and the verbal crutches, you've lost them. You got about seven to 15 seconds to engage. And if you don't, they're not coming back. So I state that because I think it's important that we live, this is living our truth. We can't just go in there and tell them what to do. The best thing, they just watch us with no sound. Just, just observe the behavior of the coach. And I'll tell you the kind of coach that person is. You, you too, you could spot it. You, you, whether on the tennis court or on the stage, it doesn't matter. You know it when you see it. And I love that reminder for us all to be aware of our body language, uh, whether yeah. we are, whether we're in the sporting coaching world or the business coaching world. Uh, fantastic. We're off to we're off to a flying start. And interestingly, uh, our stock standard next question. Uh, I have to say, we we call it the sliding doors question. And I have had this uh, amazing opportunity to get a sneak peek at your next book called "The Moment That Defines Your Life." So, yeah. first of all, thank you for sharing the the opening sort of chapter with me there, because it does relate to our sliding doors question. So it is exactly the same concept. And I know even in our previous discussions, how fascinated you are with that moment that defines you. Uh, so that is our next question. And uh, I would love yeah, for you to take it in any direction that that you want. Um, but uh, yeah, 
Go for I'm it. Delighted. For first, first, thank you for reviewing that. I was delighted and very proud to share that with you. But I state that, Emma, because if you listen to our listeners or viewers, however you're consuming this, think about the title of this book, The Moment That Defines Your Life. Now, think about what we do, whether you're a tennis player, you're a banker, an accountant. We spent years in a classroom, and we are taught to cram exam and regurgitate. And that is the academic success that we live with before we even go out into the world. Where we're never Say that going. again. Cram, what was it? Cram, exam, and regurgitate. <laughs> but I can tell you this, and I bet you Judy Murray or any of the other fellow tennis coaches, never are they cramming, examining, and regurgitating on a tennis court. In fact, you even said that no ball hits the racket the same way anytime. But I state that because we have been locked in an educational model that has an expectation that success is defined at the capacity to be able to regurgitate what it is you were expected to cram. I'm not indicting that model. I'm simply saying there is a place for that. If you're going to become an accountant, a lawyer, you need to know that. But what you're talking about as a professional tennis player, or in the case of mine, I went into finance, but I'm a professional speaker. All we're doing all day is improving. I know that Djokovic goes onto the tennis court with a game plan, but what I love about watching him in Adal and Federer is how good they are at improvising what they didn't expect. I say that as a lead-in because I found when I wanted to write this book, and my first book is called The Climb to the Top, which is a very tactical book. I help people to recognize there's a toolkit for communication, and you talk very often about the empowering language. This is, this is part of it, but I use mountaineering as a metaphor for how to climb careers using the toolkit of communication. For this book, since emotional intelligence is my other domain, I wanted to write a book on EQ that hasn't been written. I've read them all, and I love them all, but I didn't want to write what everyone else has done. I needed to find another way to do it. And when I thought about, I have one moment, which I'll get to, but I want to, I want to preface this lead in. I wasn't sure when I was testing the concept of the book, the moment I knew in my life, there was a moment that defined my life, but I wasn't sure what other people would think about that concept. So I called Bob Littman and I called other friends and what was striking, Emma, are you kidding? Of course I had a moment. And then someone else, oh, yeah, I've been wanting to tell this story for years. Really? Like, I'm like, oh, now I'm getting excited. Every one of us does not know what we are actually preparing for. What we know is that success happens at the intersection of preparation and opportunity. You don't know what you're preparing for. You like to think you do. You want to be a professional tennis player. You want to be, a, be an investment manager, whatever that is. You work at it, but things are going to happen that you didn't expect. On September 11th, 2001, an event occurred. And on that event that changed the world that day, two months before that event, I was scheduled to speak on the 107th floor of the World Trade Center in an event space called Windows of the World. It's in the North Tower, uh, was, of the World Trade Center. So for those of you not in the United States, just to put into context, at the lower tip of Manhattan in New York City were two very tall towers called the World Trade Center. Those were the ones that were attacked 20 years ago. The North Tower had an event space that was on the 107th floor of that can hold almost 500 people. 
It is also a venue that held a lot of professional conferences, conferences that you and I speak in. And at 9.20 a.m., two months before the conference, we had an agenda. A friend of mine named Scott called me and he asked me, he said, Chuck, I know you're scheduled at 9.20. I'm scheduled at 3.20. I have a conflict. Would you mind switching if it's okay with the conference producers? We all got on the phone. It was good with me because it turns out I had another request for an engagement at that time in a different neighborhood. So to set that agenda, Scott is now speaking on 9-11 at 9-20 in the morning. I am scheduled to speak at 3-20 in the afternoon. On 9-11 at that particular day, at 9-15, I was actually five miles away in another neighborhood giving a speech. The speech was interrupted by the conference producer who explained to us that an incident has occurred at the World Trade Center. It's being covered on television. We're going to stop you, Chuck. I'm so sorry, but we need to watch this. And we watched it. And we couldn't believe what we saw. We were so stunned, frightened, completely exasperated at the witness that New York City was under attack. But that wasn't part of the story. I had said to my wife the night before that I was going to be home at 7.30, that I'll be at night for dinner. I was coming from the World Trade Center. I was very clear to her of where I was. Normally, I didn't do that because I was bouncing around. She just let me know. I don't care where you are. I just care that you're safe and what time you're coming home. When the planes hit, my first thought was, oh, my God, my wife thinks I'm in the World Trade Center. I had put a calendar entry in Bloomberg stating that I am at the World Trade Center till 6 p.m. I did not enter where I was in the morning. I never thought to do it. So my entire company had visibility and they were well aware that I was scheduled to speak in the World Trade Center. The worst part of that event is I could just go to the phone, pick up the phone, call my wife, call Bloomberg, let him know I'm okay, but the phones were down. The subways were not working. New York was in lockdown. Cell phones, landlines, everything stopped. When I got back, I walked to the Bloomberg office, which was a long walk, but it was the only way to get there. I didn't know it at the time. I hadn't thought about it, but people said, oh my God, I can't believe you're alive. Chuck, you need to walk the halls of this company. Let them know you're alive. I finally got up to the main office where there was a guy who, who was accounting for everybody and there was a list. The list was unaccounted for and presumed dead. There were three people on that list who did die. They were my colleagues who were there well before in support of my speech. I watched that individual take a pen and my name, Chuck, he crossed out Chuck. I was no, I was now accounted for, but I got to say, Emma, seeing your name at 41 years old on a list that says unaccounted for and presumed dead, I had not communicated with my wife. My brother thought I was dead. The whole company thought I was dead. And my moment was, now I'll get to it. There's nothing I can do to change the past. I cannot bring back my three Bloomberg colleagues. I attended 16 funerals and memorial services. The first conclusion, this was not my day to die. Next, what am I going to do about it? If I can't change the world, I can't change the event, there's one thing, Emma, I could change, and that's myself. But what of it? What am I going to change? That moment, though, unleashed a massive amount of reflection, not in a morose, oh, my God, I feel sorry for myself. It was more a philosophical question. Why was it not my day to die? And what can I do about it as long as I'm here? So... 
To make a short story even longer, uh, over the course of time, I started climbing mountains. I wasn't sure. It was something I always thought about doing, but I said, am I finding myself? Am I losing myself? I don't know. But what I know is there's something out there calling me to take a journey for me to figure this out. I could continue in my Wall Street world, making great, make a great living, flying around the world, doing what I really enjoy, but I really wasn't making a difference in anyone's life. So I was on a mountain on a very long expedition in Alaska, in a mountain called Mount Bona. It took 14 days to get to the top and the bottom, and it was coming down that mountain that it hit me like a lightning bolt. I am now going to be the proverbial mountain guide to people who need my help. I am going to go home and I'm going to dedicate myself every day in the service of other people's success. I'm going to teach them what I know. I'm going to hope that perhaps I can inspire them to face their fears, to step onto those stages, to look into the camera and recognize you got a whole world ahead of you and you got one choice. You can grab it for all the gusto that you can. So my moment, Emma, was very much caused by a tragic event of which I was unscathed but in my heart and in my mindset, it changed me in ways I cannot even begin to measure, nor can I begin to express my gratitude and appreciation to all the people that have helped me on this second part of my career. So, and, and to end all of that, the people that are featured in the book had moments. They were not necessarily 9-11 moments, but they were moments that became our best teachers. And I'm very delighted and, and grateful to be able to tell their stories where we use emotional intelligence and stoicism and the juxtaposition of the two for how do we behave in times of adversity, not necessarily 9-11 traumas, but in times of everyday adversity, which you can, in your mind, create a big sense of trauma, or we can pause, be in the moment, recognize what is happening in front of us and recognize there's only one thing I can do and that's change me. I was hanging on to every word that you were, even though I've read it, listening to you repeat the story uh, is, is really quite something that it's, it's hard to imagine. And I just want to highlight something you just said there that yes, when we do stop and reflect on our own life, everybody does have a moment it's not necessarily a 9-11 moment, but everyone has a moment. And if I could read out one quote that really resonated with me to really support what we're talking about here in the book, it, it reads, uh, remembering that you are going to die is the best way I know to avoid the trap of thinking you have something to lose. Yeah. You are already naked. There is no reason not to follow your heart. Yeah, And not everybody's faced with, with a life and death situation. However, whenever I ask someone to map out the sliding doors moment, people have a moment, maybe two, you know, sometimes two and three. And that is the same thing or same opportunity for us to, to self-reflect. So I really loved that, that quote. Um, I appreciate yeah. it. Well, that, that, that was Steve Jobs in the 2005 commencement address that, that he said that that had a great impact on me when I watched it. Because as I heard those words, he had been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. He had his moments and I read that and I watched it and I watched it again and I read it again and I read the transcript and my goodness, that resonated with me in that way because those words that he expressed were words that I felt, that you felt, that everyone has felt, but we don't know quite exactly how to put that into some kind of phrasing that that 
relates to our perspective. But what I came to find out, Emma, when I read when I wrote the book, the commonalities abound. Most people are facing something that is very important to them, even if we don't see it as necessarily traumatic or a 9-11 moment. What we find is we're all each other's teachers in these moments when we don't know who to turn to because this wasn't supposed to happen. So how do you deal with it? You can't cram, examine, regurgitate your way out of that one. All you can do is stay calm under the weight of that kind of pressure as a good athlete does and recognize what's your next move. You got 20 seconds for your next serve. You got to figure out, and that's what Bob talks about. You got 20 seconds from here to there to get that mind clear and to take the past. The past did not exist. You're oblivious to it because every 20 seconds is a new start. And that's the way I looked at it. I'm, I'm Every step is a mountaineer is the next one. What's the next one? I can't be looking at the summit. I just have to be present right here and recognize I have a wonderful opportunity to take a step. Breathe. I have a wonderful opportunity to take another step. And before you know it, you're at the top, high-fiving and hugging. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's the only way I know how to be successful. Just take action next time and then come back to the present, execute and deliver. So, all right. What about our guiding question in one to a maximum of three words? What do you think makes a great coach? Three words. Empathy, humility, and conviction. Now, I recognize you talk to Federer, he said, listening, Serena's coach, listening, Judy Murray, listening. What they were describing, what the emotional intelligence, the social scientists call tactical listening. So this is where I use the empathy. And while I agree with them on the listening, being an empathetic individual is, is being a listener, is recognizing that's where I blend in the humility. What I had to learn, Emma, as a coach, I needed to, that fine line between humility and conviction. I could not impose my way. I am there. I am being paid to bring my methods, but my methods are not always the starting point. I have to be humble enough to figure out, and this is the case where I described earlier in, 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 our, in our meeting, where I had to find another way in that wasn't necessarily my natural starting point. And I think that's where the humility is. But once I figured it out, Emma, this is where the conviction comes in. I am paid to bring every damn ounce of conviction I have to be able to use the methods that I am certain can work, but I have to constantly adjust along the way, recognizing that every one of them has their own freedom of self-expression, and I need to be able to be sensitive to that where the empathy comes in. So empathy, humility, conviction are to me the most important. The Coaching Podcast is sponsored by The Samson Agency, a boutique talent agency managing entertainers, artists, and athletes. You can learn more at thesamsonagency.com. And if you're interested in becoming a coach, check out opendoorcoachingusa.com for all our latest courses in Leader as Coach and our High Performance Workplace Coaching Certification. Now let's get back to the show. And what about, like, do you have that one thing that you just love to to ask? I always ask, what surprises you the most about being a coach? And I state that because I think any vocation or any career that you pick, there are expectations that are either met or you fall short of, or sometimes you exceed them. And I think we have an expectation that we think it's going to go a certain way. 
And the reason I ask other coaches, what surprises you the most? I, I love hearing those answers because I've heard a wide spectrum of, you know, what surprises me the most is how ungrateful people can be. Okay. You know, what surprises me the most is how lazy can people. Oh, okay. So sometimes coaches hit me with, all right, I see where you're going with this. But every now and then I get, you know, what surprises me, Chuck, is just the capacity that people can achieve if, and then they hit me with, they're open to it. And I think that's to me, I don't think as coaches, we can go into any project being able to reasonably forecast the outcome. We think we know, but the learning moment here, which is why I like the question, it reminds us not to focus on the outcome. This is where I talk about stoicism in the book, because if we're focused on the outcome, we're not directing our energy to the input. We're directing too much on the external, what would happen if I do a good job, which I understand why people do it, but it's a distraction. It's not focusing our energy on the next step. What surprises us most is the way, when I love this question, is when people say, what surprised me the most is how well it works when you build it in, 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 in increments. And that using the Leo Tolstoy quote, he used it on the battlefield, but a soldier's best assets are time and patience. And I never forgot that when I read War and Peace, because as I think about the people that I'm coaching, I have to be vigilant about time and patience because they have an expectation that if they just do what Chuck says, they'll be on, on the TED stage in two weeks. Well, that's not the case. Time and patience. So the surprise is, is the question that I love because I never get the same answer. It's the ball that never hits the ground and the racket at the same time. It's lovely because I think by design, it's meant not to be the same. But as us coaches, look at what we learn from the output of that question. It's different every time. That's beautiful. It'd be boring if we got the same answer. <laughs> I really love it. There you go. No one's ever asked that one on the podcast. Uh, and I love the word surprise too, because it reminds me of, I'm a big, like I, I do birthday week. I don't do just, I, you know, my partner was always at first, it was like, Oh, I just go for dinner. What are you talking about? You do birthday <laughs> right. week. One shot, two hours. Yeah. We're done. No, I don't think so. <laughs> and it, it, it brings back that element of surprise to me. That's, you know, one of my, one of my most beautiful things about life is is the element of surprise. Yeah. So I really appreciate that question. Mentioned now a, a couple of times um, stoicism and you know, looking it up in, in Google, right, we've got the endurance of pain or hardship without the display of feelings and without complaint. Now, as a coach, I'm already wanting to reframe that definition, but I'm just going to go straight to you in how you use it in your coaching and and what's your definition of stoicism? Yeah, well, I think let me first state that I I I I looked at stoicism I, I, as something that I misunderstood, and I looked at the world as philosophy when I was younger, and all these intellect intellectuals were talking about Aristotle and Plato. I was completely lost and confused. In fact, I found it rather pretentious. You're sitting there talking about this and that, and only because I was too stupid to grasp what they were talking about. It just it didn't speak to me. But when I started reading this book called Meditations, which was Marcus Aurelius's 
notes to himself on as he was trying to hold together the Roman Empire, I, I finally clicked that having a philosophy actually matters. And what I found is in the Stoicism where I misunderstood. I thought Stoicism was bad things happen to you and you become unfeeling, almost nihilistic. And you know what? It didn't happen. And that didn't matter to me. And you just become this dull, lifeless thing. That's not that at all. The Stoic were Marcus Aurelius, who when I read, even though he was a soldier by trade, I think he was the most wonderful human being on the face of the earth. And I think why people have Jesus, Muhammad, whoever you look up to, I get it. I look up to this guy because when, when I'm reading about someone who had to get on the battlefield to kill people, and yet what he was talking about was peace and equanimity and finding the balance in your life, but treating all of those events, and here's where my definition comes in, all these things happen, and I'll use the 9-11 example. It didn't happen to me. It happened for me. It helped me to realize that this event was external. It didn't touch me. It didn't harm me. It didn't kill me, but it became my best teacher because I looked at it very dispassionately. I didn't get caught up in the emotion. All the friends that I lost, oh my God, all those memorial services are tears everywhere. And I, I was certainly very sad for losing my friends, but I looked at that as, there's nothing I can do. I, I had nothing to do with that event. I'm not going to feel guilty for it. I'm not going to blame anybody for it. And so the stoicism for me was learning to walk the continuum between being passionate and being dispassionate and knowing the difference. I am very passionate about the things I care about, but I'm very dispassionate when I see an event that I didn't cause, that I had nothing to do about, but it could be a learning moment for me. And stoicism is about seeing all these events and not internalizing first, understanding they happened, okay, staying calm under the weight of pressure to solve the problem, clearing the mind, not cluttering it. There's no book you can read. I don't want to fill my mind when there's a stoic episode. I want to empty it. I want to clear it so that I have clarity of thought and how I'm going to solve this problem. And so stoicism to me was recognizing all these events occur all the time, all in front of us, not getting hyped up in our emotional reaction. So I'm not needlessly burning energy on something that doesn't serve that problem. I need to solve it. I need to do something in the service of the solution. And the more that I'm down and out and complaining and bitching and moaning, all of the energy is focused in a destructive way that doesn't solve the problem. Stoics seek to clear the mind, be dispassionate, be an objective as best we can, removing our biases and recognizing that we can solve this problem if we just keep cool heads. Cool heads prevail. How's that? Not always easy to remove biases, is it? Again, it is very it, difficult. There's, there's a theme coming through here around awareness. I keep coming back to the yeah. more we can be aware of how we respond in these moments. And our ability to be able to clear the mind is absolutely critical as, as coaches, as players, as people, as parents. Uh, so, so I thank you for, thank you for redefining it. I knew you'd be able to redefine it for me. But there's a good point that you're making, Emma. And I think it relates to all of us as coaches. And I'm very mindful of what I'm about to say. When I started teaching my tactics out of the book, and I wrote the book to be a career how-to and a call to action. However, and here's where I'm making a distinction. What I came to find out, at least for the things that I teach, these are very transferable skills. If you're an engineer, a doctor, a tennis coach, whatever that is, you're using the communication toolkit. 
But I used to think about going to work as something where you turn on a switch, you do what you do, and then you go home and you want to shut the switch off because you need to get away from it. But the reason I say that is we are one person, one life. It doesn't matter that we have a career and we have a personal life and we keep them separate. I do. I'm very private in my life. I don't I don't need to broadcast my life on Instagram to show I'm, I'm giving my kid a birthday cake. I don't care. However, what I teach is one thing because it's exhausting to think that the skills that I teach are a switch you shut off, you go to work, you come home, and you, and you just leave all the bad habits behind. We strive to be one person that that your, your spouse, your children, your boss, your shareholders, whoever that may be, they recognize that individual every time you interact with them. This isn't the professional Emma. This isn't the personal Emma. This is just the Emma that I know. I have an expectation of how Emma is going to show up. I know that she has established credibility, trust, and respect. I don't care if it's over a cup of coffee or you're you're giving a, a speech to shareholders. To me, I'm just going to trust that Emma's going to do it. And I don't care what the situation is because I know Emma only has one way of showing up. But I want to make that point because I think it's important as coaches that what we are teaching are life skills. I don't want to be a life coach. I'm not. I don't want to get into people's lives. I don't get paid for that. I, and it's not that I don't care. That's not my mission. But what I know is if we separate these things from work and life, we're just doubling our efforts and we're going to get half the capacity. Your metaphor of 80% of unforced errors are caused off balance, 80% of careers are 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 impeded because they're off balance. Same thing. That, that applies to everything you can set an example to. Mm. So what do we do? We teach them balance. That's a life skill, even if it's at work. Yep, absolutely. And a previous guest on the coaching podcast talked about coaching as a higher level of communicating, which we need when we're talking to our partner, when we need when we're switched on to to coach a client, so so I really I really appreciate that. All right, let's. Uh, I know you've got your top ten commandments, but I do have to ask about the rule of three. Can you <laughs> can you share? Sure. If you think about the way we speak to each other, we have a lot to say. Particularly when we're in school, we get scores for volume. The more you know, which means you've got a lot of knowledge. So what the heck? Just keep talking to me. But the Greeks figured out, and it's a Greek rhetorical technique called the rule of three. And if you think about the few following phrases, or the first, think about the books that you read as children. Three blind mice, three musketeers, three little pigs, Goldilocks, three little bears. How many wishes does the genie grant you? Three. Now, think about your life today. Ready, set, go. Lights, camera, action. And if you eat Rice Krispies, which I don't, you will feel snap, crackle, and pop. This is a Greek rhetorical technique where the Greeks figured out many, many years ago or whenever it is they were becoming literate and teaching us something that the human mind is very good in the rhythm of three. So often when we give examples, there's like ABC and then we say DEF and XYZ. When you are coaching, I'd imagine, oh, I'm not seeing you on a tennis court, I'd imagine you establish a certain rhythm about how you're going to serve the ball. It's a mental game. You... You, you start to click or whatever it is you do to activate it. Where so many of my clients and students really appreciate it, it's the first time they've actually began to put into practice such a simple framework and recognizing how people react to the threes. Mm. 
Now, in the United States, the great documents of the world, including the Declaration of Independence, was written in the rule of three. You, as an American, have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Abraham Lincoln wrote the Gettysburg Address in the rule of three. We cannot consecrate, desecrate, or hollow this land. Every great document in the world, every great commercial you'll see. Now think about the 70s rock bands, Blue Oyster Cult, Cleden's Clearwater Revival, Electric Light Orchestra, Men at Work, bomb, bomb, bomb. Now Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin had a different idea, but what they were onto was the recognition that this technique sticks. So I devoted an entire chapter to it. And now everyone in my world, when they see me, it's one, two, three, boom, boom. And I get all these unsolicited emails. Hey, Chuck, you wouldn't believe how I use the rule of three. People loved it. Yeah, duh. <laughs> I didn't invent it. I'm just trying to encourage you to use it. Mm-hmm. It works. <laughs> oh, fantastic. All right. Could you finish with sharing a uh, a mountaineering uh, metaphor that relates to coaching um, yeah. as a sort of a last little tip. What what do you want to leave our audience yeah. with? Yeah, I, I, it's important for us as a coach that what we bring each day is a mindset because our behavior is a reflection of what's in my mind. And we, at least I hope I can encourage everyone to bring a discipline and a rigor to your mindset, because we know when you show up, if somebody's all over the place, if they've had a bad night, if they're scattered, if they're tired, we don't want to show up that way. So I think about coaching. I think about my life as as a mountaineering metaphor that has three things in common. That each of us, whatever it is, three things. One, you set a goal. Think about the bottom of the mountain. Now, my goal in climbing a mountain is not to get to the top. It's to get home to my family. I don't focus on the outcome. I've been on a lot of mountain summits, but that's not what I I needed to get home. Getting to the summit was the halfway mark. Second, set a goal. Second, there's no shortcut to any mountain I've ever climbed, and there's no shortcut to winning the U.S. Open or the Fritz. It's not going to happen. How does it happen? One step at a time, one serve at a time, one volley at a time. And then lastly, so first frame, set a goal. Second, one step at a time. But here's the most important, Emma. It's not the what, it's not the why, it's the who. You can't do it alone. Serena has a coach, Djokovic, everybody. Nadal, who doesn't? Everyone has a coach. We cannot do what we do alone. Our circle of trust, and we have a circle of competence, we have a circle of dignities, we've got all kinds of circles in our lives. The most important circle in us is that last one, the circle of trust. Who are we going to bring on the journey with us? And I think about that, set a goal, one step at a time, can't do it alone. The most important element of this takeaway is who you decide to bring on your journey bar none. It doesn't matter whether it's tennis, mountaineering, or finance, anything it is, who's with you. That will make or break your happiness and prosperity. What a great moment for us all just to reflect on. So coaches, please pause, write down that goal, talk about your action steps and who is going to help you get to where you need to go. Thank you so much, Chuck. Uh, It's so much empathy in in my heart with humility and conviction for us to live the best story of our lives with stoicism. Uh, I really am so grateful that you've come into my life. So thank you for being on the coaching podcast. Emma, it's such a pleasure to collaborate. I was so excited when I saw your email and the ability to be able to share our stories in the service of others so that we may 
we are all each other's teachers. And what a wonderful podcast you were doing to be able to do this in the service of others that we may learn from each other. There's no higher calling. Thank you for doing what you do. I appreciate that. And thank you, everybody, for your tactical listening. And if you enjoyed this episode of the Coaching Podcast, please share it with a fellow coach. And thanks for listening.